I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. We're going to talk about prophecy tonight. I asked a question last week, and uh, I told you about a conversation I had with an atheist uh, where I was discussing God with him, and I said, um, how could any book prove that it is from God? Like, let's say the Bible's from God. What sort of proof would we look for? And the answer actually um, isn't that when you open the book, it sings to you, or that you see your name in the book, or something like that. But rather, it seems to be more objective than that, right? So the answer from Scripture fits our answer from logic. We did this last week. Um, Isaiah 46 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. That would be prophecy, right? What's the end? And I'm telling you at the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So God, he can, and you might call it self-fulfilling prophecy, because it is. God's like, I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to make sure it happens. But that's exactly the point, <laughs> that God's doing it. And when we have prophecy that's proven in the scripture, then we are proving that the scripture has information from God. And if it has information from God, then it takes, starts to take its place of authority in our lives. And it's revealed from God. So I'm not going to say, well, you know, this chapter has prophecy. And the next chapter that warns me of the judgment of my sin, I'll ignore that. That would be completely irrational. I mean, like, if, if the Bible's got prophecy, then it's going to start to affirm the rest of the scripture as well. So prophecy does a few things. One, it will prove that the message is from God. Two, it'll guarantee the rest of God's promises. Because the same one who said this will happen and it happened, well, whatever else he says is going to happen. It'll prepare us for the future. Now I'll go over these again later. It'll set the Bible apart from all other religious books and all the religions because none of them have this kind of stuff. I think this is very exciting. I went over a couple examples last week of people who tried to have prophecy. We talked about Joseph Smith. We talked about the Watchtower organization and their failed prophecies to show you that the very few religions who bother trying to have prophecy fail. But the Bible stands apart. It also gives us comfort about God's sovereignty in our lives because he's in control if he can make these things happen. It helps us to make sense of what's going on in the world around us because we can look at it through the lens of what God has declared is going to happen in the future. And very importantly, it gives us understanding about the life and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it ultimately comes down to. And we will, we will be getting to the Jesus prophecies later, but tonight I want to start with something else. So, so prophecy here to review is the fingerprint of God. The Bible has many fulfilled prophecies and they're specific and complex prophecies, which those are the only kinds I'm really interested in for the sake of proving the Bible. Once you've proven it, you can take the unfulfilled prophecies, the ones that are yet to come, and then you go, now I can trust these because of these fulfilled ones. Now what we'll do tonight is we'll look at Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, and it has a prophecy about the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. It's in your Bibles in Ezekiel chapter 26. Um, now there's a few things you're going to want to know. Um, this is not a prophecy about Jesus. I specifically like to use this prophecy because it's just so perfect for what we're discussing. It's a prophecy that was much in advance of the events. It's very detailed and very specific. It talks about not only the, the fact that the city would be destroyed, but exactly how it would be destroyed in detail. So it's very exciting. And many people are very unaware of it, even believers. And I think once they know about it, it's very encouraging, you know. And you can be like, "Hey, man, I can take I can take my friend to this," you know. And um, 
And secular history confirms the fulfillment of what's written here. Secular history confirms it. So it's like a really great example of fulfilled prophecy. Tyre, as a city, Tyre was the capital of the Phoenician Empire. Tyre was a very important city. She was called the Queen of the Seas. Because as we look at uh, this map here, we can see this Phoenician Empire, and this is the Mediterranean Sea, and most of it, or the majority of it, the trade and the ocean-going vessels of the Mediterranean Sea was controlled by Phoenician, by, the, by this, this empire, the Phoenician Empire. And Tyre, which is, let me see if I can show you, would have been actually, well, basically it's over there by Israel and Lebanon, if you see them on the far right. That's where Tyre is located. Tyre is just one city, but it was the capital of this empire. It was literally the most powerful city-state of Phoenicia, which was the biggest world empire of the time. The Phoenicians. Tyre was full of false gods. It was full of the worship of various deities, and it controlled trade throughout the city, and throughout the region, and throughout the entire Mediterranean Sea. Tyre, this city, controlled the trade. So they were very powerful militarily. They were also had an extremely powerful navy. And they were very boastful about these things. The city uh, Tyre had been continuously occupied, according to them, for 2,000 years. It was impregnable. They called it the Queen of the Seas. So this, this is, there's a lot of boasting going on. There's a lot of heavy attitudes about these things. The, this, the city of Tyre, the center of the, of, of the Phoenician Empire, was considered impregnable. They had massive walls that had never, ever been breached. No army had ever made it through those walls, and they thought no army ever will. Now, Ezekiel spoke about this city, and here's what it says in Ezekiel 26. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down, break down her towers. I also... I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. How interesting the, the detail that's given here, right? It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages, which are in the fields, shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So there's some specific details here. Let me just draw your attention to a couple things. They will cause many nations to come against you. Not one nation, but many. Multiple different nations will come against Tyre. They will not just come at one time, but they will come like the waves of the sea come up. An analogy that was appropriate for Tyre, the queen of the seas. And as the waves crash, there's a wave. Then there's another wave. Then there's another wave. There will be waves of attacks against Tyre. And they're going to do what? They're going to destroy her walls and break down her towers. Also, the dust will be scraped from the city and the city will be like the top of a rock. Then we continue in verse 7, just reading on. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar. We have the name of the king that will come against them, specifically named. King of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and an army with many people. He, now this is a singular pronoun, he. So who's the he? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. 
He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. So the daughter villages, you know, you'd see the city of Tyre, and here's the city right on the coast, right on the edge of the ocean. And then you've got daughter villages, and like little farming communities, and they're going to be bringing food into the city of Tyre to feed the city inhabitants, and the city protects them in return. So these are the daughter villages, smaller little farming communities. And they're all going to get slain. And the Nebuchadnezzar is going to come up against them and is going to build a siege mound against them and raise a, def and raise a defense and all this other stuff. He'll direct the battering rams against the walls and break down the towers. The walls and towers will be breached. Then verse 10, because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Be a large number of horses that will come. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots when he enters your gates. Never before had this happened to this city when he enters your gates. As men enter a city that has been breached, with the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. So there will be a breaching of the wall and a destruction of the um, the defenses and a killing of many people as well as the daughter villages. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. But now this is very important as we're reading this passage, the prophecy, right? All of a sudden, in the next verse, in verse 12, it stops saying he, Nebuchadnezzar, and it says something else. It says they. Now at this point, the prophecy, I think, expands to the many nations. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to do these things, and then they, referring to the many nations, does something else. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. What? They're going to throw your city into the ocean. This is not normal. Okay, that's what we talk about, specific prophecy here. They're going to lay your stones, timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. I will put an end to the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock, or like a plant. You shall be a place for spreading nets, and you shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. Now you can continue reading on. It just it continues to reiterate these things, and God is just threatening them of what is going to happen. But let me give you, just to list them out, the requirements of this prophecy that Ezekiel gives. So here's, here's this prophecy. Many nations are going to come against Tyre. Not one, multiple nations. These will come like the waves of the sea. So like in sets, you know, the nation comes, another nation comes, that sort of thing. The daughter villages will be slain by the sword. So they won't die of plague or pestilence or famine, they'll die from the sword. The destruction of the walls of Tyre and the towers of Tyre will happen, and specifically it will be Nebuchadnezzar that will do that. Nebuchadnezzar, specifically, he will breach the town, he'll break through the walls, he'll be the first one in history to do it. The city will also be cast into the ocean and it will be like the top of a rock, and fishermen will cast their nets there. And then finally, the city will never be rebuilt. Now this is very specific prophecy, very detailed, and quite impressive because this is not something that the Israelites could have accomplished. They were weak at the time. And Nebuchadnezzar was definitely in power. Yeah, he could do stuff, but they couldn't do it. So let's look at the fulfillment of these things. This is the main prophecy. There's a lot to absorb here, so just do the one tonight. We'll have conversation questions afterwards, of course. Um, so many nations will come against Tyre. 
Now, Tyre, as we said, had been occupied, they say, for 2,000 years, and it had never been breached. It had never been destroyed. Their walls had never been taken down. Um, and it'll be like the waves of the sea, which means, of course, different times. The daughter village is slain by the sword, the destruction of the walls and the tower. Okay, let me see here. Nebuchadnezzar will breach the town. All of these things that we have on the screen before us, they all happened around the same time. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he decides he's going to come against the city of Tyre. And he lays a siege mount against them. And for 13 years, he sieges the city of Tyre. That's a very long time, right? Well, let me describe to you what a siege actually is. You see, a siege and a siege mound, the idea is that I come to a city and they have walls, and I don't have the ability, do you like that call it Nebi? That's, sorry, that's, it's just get tired of typing it out all the time, so we'll just get that out of the way. Yes, Nebi. Um, he sieged Tyre for 13 years. What you do is you come to a city, they have walls. I can't breach the walls. I can't just knock them down. And as I approach, they have the high ground, and they shoot their arrows and throw their rocks and stuff at me, and then my troops die. And so what I do is I just build an army around the town, and I wait. I just wait, because you know what? They don't have farms inside that town, and they will run out of food eventually. And eventually, they will either make a last-ditch effort and charge out those walls and come to fight us to break out and get some food, or they will pull up the white flag and yell surrender, or they'll all just be dead and we'll go kick the door in and take what we want. <laughs> but why did Nebuchadnezzar take 13 years to siege? I mean, you can't live off of your storage for 13 years. I know some doomsday preppers that can do this, but only a few of us, right? Most people aren't able to do this. How did they last so long? Well, you have to see Tyre, the city. They had an island about a half a mile off the coast of the shore where the main city was. And that island was well fortified, and it was called the Island of Tyre. So there was the city on the mainland and the city on the island. So there were two parts of one city. What they did when Nebuchadnezzar sieged was they would bring in with their, with their ships food and water and resources from the boats because they had a powerful armada and Nebuchadnezzar had the powerful ground forces. So he had the ground, he killed the daughter villages, slayed them by the sword, and waited, waited, and waited. Now we know from history that he was actually physically present. He physically came and was leading the army in this siege and he let somebody else uh, do, the, do the job up in Babylon. But this siege continues and goes for 13 years, 13 years. Well, as they see that they're not going to be able to conquer and beat these armed forces and they'll eventually breach the walls, the people of Tyre begin taking their belongings and their families and everything else and leaving the mainland city and transporting themselves over to the island. The island had massive walls, it was well fortified, and they had a powerful navy to defend it. So they retreat to the island and finally, Nebuchadnezzar breaches the walls. Nebuchadnezzar breaks in, he tr trots his horses around the city, he takes and steals what he can, but he finds that a lot of the people have retreated off to the island. And he doesn't have the ability to chase them over there. So he kind of goes back, sort of victorious, sort of not. And he heads back up to Babylon after this 13-year siege. That will be the first part of the fulfillment of this Ezekiel prophecy. Now, the most common, because I'd like to share with you the, the, um, the most common sort of atheist objections that we get to these passages that I'll be sharing with you about prophecy. The most common one is this. The prophecy failed because Nebuchadnezzar didn't do everything about the prophecy. But what are they forgetting when they say that? They're forgetting that there were many nations 
and then there would come like waves of the sea. And they're forgetting that the text only said that Nebuchadnezzar would do certain things, which Nebuchadnezzar did. Now, some of them, these the atheists, their claim will be, well, you know, he must have written this as Nebuchadnezzar was doing the siege. So in the middle of the siege, he's writing how Nebuchadnezzar is going to do all this stuff, and then that's when Ezekiel was written. That's what that's what the skeptics will say. I don't think that's the case. But what's awesome is when Alexander the Great shows up 300 years later, or 200, excuse me, a little over 200 years later. So that's when we see the rest of the fulfillment, and we answer the question of why didn't he do everything? Well, it's because somebody else did. So the rest of the fulfillment is that the city is supposed to be cast into the ocean. It's going to be like the top of the rock. And this is fulfilled by a guy you've probably heard of. His name is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great shows up and he says, I am going to take out Tyre. And not just because he hates Tyre, but because he's going to take out everybody. Okay, he is conquering the known world faster than anyone has ever done it before. And he's conquered the cities from the north, and now he's got to Tyre, and he's like, I'm taking you over too. And Tyre, well, they had an option. You see, when Alexander the Great showed up with his armies and his power, they could submit and just welcome him as king, and he would allow them to continue worshiping their gods, doing their various things. Or they could rebel and have a fight. Alexander the Great, young guy, he's very much into proving himself at this point in his life. He's just demolishing anybody in his path. But Tyre, they feel pretty powerful. At this point, there's not really many people left in that old city that Nebuchadnezzar wrecked. It's pretty much in ruins. So they're all pretty much on the island sea. Well, Alexander sends out the information. He says, tell you what, just submit to my, to my, to my kingship. Just yield to me. And they're like, okay, Alexander the Great, the Greek, you know, we're going we're gonna to yield to you, no problem. He says, great. So all I require you to do is let me come in and go into your temple and sacrifice to your gods. The thing is, the people of Tyre were very quirky about their religion. Only people who were citizens of the city were allowed to enter the temple. So they tell Alexander the Great, no, you can't do this. But the way they tell him is very specific, right? He sends an envoy of people saying, here's, here's what Alexander wants. And they're on the island city. Well, they take, in response to this, they take the people up onto the wall of the city, 150 feet above sea level, on the wall, and they slit their throats and toss them off into the ocean. So that was a no. So that was definitely a no. Alexander is furious, and he's going to make an example of them, because you see, this city is like the, the linchpin for him creating the, the right amount of intimidation, because after what he does to Tyre, everyone else just submits. And they're like, not after what you did to them, Alexander. We're just going to do whatever you say. So here's what happens. Alexander the Great starts his fight. And they retreat again. Anybody who's left in the main city, they all run out to the island. And there they hide. Alexander the Great then, he, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't want to have a 13-year fight. He wants to get this thing done quick. He's all about speedy battles. Nobody's been as fast as him in the history of the world up until then. He basically invented the Blitzkrieg before tanks were, were around. And they retreat again, and he says, you know what? We're coming over there. We don't have the armada, we don't have the navy to take over your city, but we're going to come over there with our troops. And he built a causeway. He actually built a causeway, or a mole, a, a, a way for the troops to simply walk over to the island a half a mile. And here's how he did it. Alexander the Great began constructing this mole, and from the mainland city to the 
island city, he starts taking the rubble of the old city and throwing it into the ocean. He built, he puts wood planks down there and he starts throwing the, the rocks and the wood and the dirt and everything he can find from the old city, throws it into the ocean in order to build this half mile long causeway that was like 150 feet across. He built one about halfway across and the tyrants, they take a, a ship, light it on fire, and they ram it into the mole that he was building. And it destroys it, it decimates it, it breaks its foundations, it causes a horrible fire, breaks some, some of the construction stuff he has and all that, right? So he just starts again. And it takes months, I think it took about 11 months for him to get it finally all the way across. They get all the way across and his guys are running up to the to this big wall the tyrants have. The, the, the people of Tyre, they, they heat up sand with fire. They cook sand and then dump it down off the wall onto the troops. And the troops get sand under their armor and they're burning and they tear their armor off to try to get it up. And then the, then the arrows start flying from the wall to shoot the unarmored guys. And so it was, it was pretty brutal, but then he had something on his side, for those of you that are interested in this sort of thing, which is the catapult. He actually had the ballista. The, 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 there was a, I guess you could say, a, a new ballista had been invented that he put to use and helped him conquer the, the known world. And they used um, torsion, which is to do with twisting the ropes and all this fun, weird stuff for the ballista. So you didn't just pull the wood back, but you also had a series of ropes that were all twisted and it created a massive amount of force. So then they could fire, break through the walls. Eventually they destroyed the walls. Eventually they defeated. He had some backup from uh, his Phoenician fleet as well as the Cyprian fleet. And they even destroyed the navy of Tyre. So they just they just decimated them. But here's another um, picture of what it would have looked something like. He actually had these huge, you would have thought of them as little skyscrapers that they could roll forward as they were uh, fighting and building this mole to get it out there. You can see them heating their sand, ready to toss it onto the oncomers. And then they would actually put catapults on these towers that he had on the mole so he could fire them into the wall, absolutely tearing it apart. Pretty crazy stuff, right? When he gets to the island, Alexander spares nobody. All of the troops, seven to 8,000 troops, he slaughters them all. He kills them all. And everybody left, men, women, children, they're either killed or they're put into some kind of slavery. He just destroys things. That's a pretty horrific thing. Now, since then, some interesting things have happened. That causeway that he built became a collecting ground for the, for the ocean streams that were going there. And so it collected more and more and built up even more and more. It came, sort of looks like a peninsula now. And then the ancient city of Tyre on the island, it pretty much was sunk, at least large portions of it sunk underwater. So there's like a reef now that wasn't uh, probably there at the time. So, it, so it's changed the dynamics of the land quite a bit. The prophecy says that fishermen will cast their nets there and the only thing that's really happened there consistently from that time till now is fishing. And they still fish there. So we see an actual detailed, detailed, detailed prophecy fulfilled hundreds of years after it was given. I mean, even the skeptics don't think this was written after the fact. Some of them do. There are some that do. They have no case. Their only case is it had to have been written after the fact. It's prophecy. <laughs> and this becomes this becomes the only reason. And when your only reason to doubt it is so you don't have to believe it, well, then you're just you have a blind faith position. <laughs> a 
blind anti-faith position, I guess you might call it. Now, it also says in the passage that Tyre will never be rebuilt. Um, that's in verse 12. And this is actually the go-to. There's two go-to accusations against this passage, this fulfilled prophecy. One is, well, Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to do all that stuff. It doesn't matter if Alexander did, which is obviously not the passage in context. They're just not reading it carefully. Then the other go-to is, well, but Tyre was rebuilt. Tyre was rebuilt. And it still stands today. And that's that's what they'll say. But let's let's get into that. Let's deal with this challenge to this amazing prophecy. I mean, in all honesty, let's just pause for a second. Let's suppose that everything happened, but it ended up being rebuilt. How do you explain that? Like, how do you explain that, that Nebuchadnezzar came down he did exactly what the Bible said he was going to do. 200 years later, Alexander the Great, when everybody who read or wrote this book was dead, Alexander the Great shows up, he does exactly what the passage says, scrapes it like a rock, throws it into the ocean, comes over and decimates the place, just like the scripture says. How do you explain this? I, I don't have an explanation other than God. But then I would be curious as to well, then why was it rebuilt. But let's, let's get into that. Um, rebuilt, what does that really mean? Rebuild means to be restored or to be returned to a prior existing state. Right? You, to rebuild, you have to rebuild. You can't just build something and label it the same as the old thing. You have to rebuild. Well, here is a picture from the 1930s of Tyre. And you can see how the mole that was constructed, it's gathered all this silt and sand. It's kind of collected on there. And you can see how... Um, the reef around it where the larger portions of the city have sunk and then there's um, just basically a dock that's there. You can see it sticking out where people fish. It's a place for spreading of nets. It's a good place to fish. But since then, 1930s, modern day Tyre has continued to grow. Kind of like we, we have cities in Southern California, people don't realize this until they visit us, and they realize our cities are all connected. Like you don't know which city you're in unless you like live there or you look at the street signs and they happen to say like Hawaiian Gardens or something on it. And you go, okay, I know where I am. Well, it, it's something like that. The city has just been growing and spreading out. Modern day Tyre looks like this. That's modern day Tyre. Of course, you're looking at not just Tyre there, but other various areas. But here we are looking at the boat area, the dock area. It's, it's small time fishermen. This is not what you call the queen of the seas. Compare this to a picture of Shanghai. Compare this to a picture of like Long Beach Harbor. And this is not the queen of the seas. This is not a rebuilt, reconstituted tire. And why is this? Well, let me explain. You cannot rebuild what's underwater. It's still there. The old city's still there. It's all underwater. How do you rebuild that? There's actually historical sources that talk about a new tire and old tire distinction. So there's two things to know here. One is that the city of Tyre wasn't parallel with the island city of Tyre. It was actually south of it. But the modern city of Tyre is right here. It's actually in a slightly different spot. And then you've got the fact that these, there's been travelers who in ancient times traveled and they, they mentioned, oh, there's the new city Tyre. And then they looked and said, and there's the old one. You can see it in the water. And so they actually made a distinction between the new and the old. So when you have New York and Old York, you don't call it a rebuilt York. You get, you get the point, the old and the new. 
Also, you can't call new tire a rebuilt tire for two other reasons. One, none of the old parts were used. None of the old parts were used. And the old placement is, the placement's not the same either. So it's not the parts of the old city. It's not the same place as the old city. And it doesn't resemble the old city. So how is it rebuilt? Let me give you an example. This is a 1966 Mustang, cherry red. This was my first car, not this picture. Mine was a lot more beat up than this. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was blue and oxidized, and you can turn into a smurf if you rub your face on it. But the, um, this, this picture is like a rebuilt 1966 Mustang. How do I know? I mean, look at it. That's a 1966 Mustang. It's got the gills, it's got everything. It's, it's just right. That's how it's supposed to look, right? What if I told you, come and look at my rebuilt 1966 Mustang? This would not be very convincing, would it? You'd be like, Mike, that's not rebuilt. That's a piece of junk. You can't call that rebuilt. Why? It doesn't resemble the original. It resembles a beat up, pathetic representation of the original. It's unbuilt, not rebuilt. So in this case, it doesn't resemble the original. What if I told you, come look at my rebuilt 1966 Mustang? And I showed you this picture. Well, it's cherry red. Isn't that it? No? Well, well, but Mike, you didn't use any of the old parts. And it doesn't resemble the original. You can call it a Mustang if you want, but it's not the same thing. So do you understand the analogy here? Tire is not a rebuilt tire, the modern day city, for a few reasons. One, it was never again the most prominent city. After that, Alexander the Great built Alexandria, and it became the port, you know, controlling city of the world at the time. But it never again held that prominence again as the queen of the seas, as the impregnable city. It also never controlled trade. It never had those titles. And in addition to that, the island city, portions, large portions of it, sunk. They're underwater. Like you can't, you literally cannot rebuild it. The city's underwater. The mainland was thrown into the water, and then the island portions sunk. And so it's all underwater, just as the scripture foretold it would be. The ancient city of Tyre consisted of a mainland and an island that were built up, and that were powerful, and that were strong, and that controlled the whole Mediterranean Sea. That was never, ever done again. So I don't think it makes sense to uh, say that it was rebuilt. Wrong location, wrong, doesn't represent the original, all those other reasons. One historian put it this way, Alexander did far more against Tyre than Shalmaneser or Nebuchadnezzar had done. Not content with crushing her, he took care that she never should revive, for he founded Alexandria as her substitute and changed forever the track of the commerce of the world. The most rational conclusion about the passage, I think, is the Bible is God's word. Certainly, Ezekiel shows that it has information that could not have come from the mind of man. That's the most rational explanation I can think of. Unless you're like, well, maybe it must have been written even later. Well, there's no evidence for that. You're just assuming it because you don't like prophecy. Now, if the Bible's God's word, that also means there's a God. You can't have him speaking without the him. <laughs> there must be a God. So I want to make sure we don't miss the point of prophecy as we're doing this study. And we'll continue next week with even more. I'll give some more examples. We'll probably look at Daniel next week and some of his prophecies that are very neat. Um, 
So it proves the messages from God. Number two, it guarantees the rest of God's promises. That's what prophecy does. It says, hey, if this is true, then the rest of the things God says must also be true. That's rationalism. The words of the Lord are pure words, Psalm says. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. So trust the Bible. If we can show that there's this and even other prophecies. I mean, Ezekiel, the guy that wrote this prophecy, he affirmed the, the, um, the God-given nature of the books of Moses. Him and Daniel existed together, and they affirm each other. And so here we have all of a sudden this sort of tag team thing going on, going, hey, you want one of us, you're going to get all of us with the scripture. So you can't just trust parts of the Bible and ignore the rest. Um, it also prepares us for the future. As it said in Isaiah 46, indeed I've spoken, I will also bring it to pass. I purposed it, I will also do it. So this is going to prepare us for the future, like it says in Revelation. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servant the things which must shortly take place. That if what God said was going to happen, happen, and what God says is going to happen, will happen. Don't ask me to say that anymore. <laughs> Not sure if that even came out right. The purpose of knowing the signs of what's to come, however, is not for us to guess at the future. Um, this is a, is a bit of a trap. I'm more interested in studying fulfilled prophecy than I am in unfulfilled prophecy, personally, only for one reason. If I'm gonna guess at the timing of the future, I'm sort of ignoring Jesus' words that no one knows the day or the hour. And pretty much everybody who guesses at the time ends up looking silly. I mean, if you're going to guess when Jesus is coming back, just guess for a time after you're dead so you don't have to be around in case you're wrong. <laughs> That's my suggestion. I think be ready for Jesus to come at any point, but don't try to predict the point that he'll come. I mean, it can be fun, but it can also be foolish. And so many men of God who are really cool guys, love the Lord, great Bible teachers, have gone astray when they try to like set dates and times and use special calculations to figure out the, the moment. And uh, we've seen that in our lifetimes, I think. So the point is for us to be ready, and the point is us for not only to be ready, but to not be troubled by these things. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I know the world is in a dark place right now, and it's been getting a lot darker a lot quicker. It sure has, certainly here in our country. But don't be troubled. Be aware, shine brightly, fight against the darkness of it, but don't be troubled. Don't let it trouble your heart. You can still go to sleep and be like, Lord, you're good. You're good. It also sets the Bible apart from other religious books. This prophecy does this, and all the prophecies we'll get into, they do this. Um, some would say, well, don't other writings have similar prophecies? No. We're falling into the very American mistake, and British, I, I imagine, too, mistake of thinking that whatever the Bible says, there's probably the same stuff in other religions. But that's just simply not the case. Please find the religion <laughs> and present it to us. It also does a few things. It helps us have the comfort of God's sovereignty because if God is in control of what happens to Tyre, is he not in control of what happens to me? I mean, think about it. He can predict what's going to happen years and years and years before it comes to pass. Doesn't that mean that he can control what's going to happen years and years before it comes to pass. Absolutely. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I like this. 
It doesn't say he causes everything um, against the will of man or something. It just says he works everything. I'm going to work everything according to the counsel of my will. I'll make sure that it ends up happening according to the counsel of my will. And so I have great comfort in this. God, there's some tough stuff going on, but I know you're going to work this according to the counsel of your will. And I can trust you, and I can rest in that promise. Not because I know the future, but because I know who holds the future. Habakkuk 3, I love this I love this passage. There's a beautiful worship song that I really need to teach you guys sometime. Based on this passage, it says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now in their community, that would be pretty much every supply of food that they have. We're going to starve. Oh, I checked the fig tree. No blossoms. I checked the vines. Nothing there. I checked the olives. Nope. No olives. I checked all the fields. There's no food there. Um, where's the flock? They're gone. There's no herd. I got nothing. Yet, I will rejoice in them. Why? Because he understood of God's sovereignty. Read Habakkuk if you want to learn uh, about God's goodness and sovereignty. Um, and the fact that we don't have to have all of our questions answered in order to have peace. And six, it helps us to make sense of what's going on in the world around us. Because I do look at the world and I do see things moving towards this one world government type. Well, it won't be one government, but it'll be a governments united. Just like what the scripture says, we see information spreading. We see the anti-Christ attitude taking root in the areas of, um, especially homosexuality, that that like you know that this is as if this is a civil rights issue. That's what the the confusion is, um, and we can make sense of some of the things that are going on because we see this stuff. And then, of course, Second uh, Timothy says, "But know this: that in the last days, perilous times will come. It'll come. It'll be that way." And finally, seven it gives us understanding about the life and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation nineteen it tells us that. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, that, that the main character of prophecy throughout the scriptures is Jesus. And so later on, we'll actually be getting into the prophecies about Jesus. We'll do at least one more week, maybe two, about some other prophecies, and then we're going to get into the Jesus ones. I like to start off of Jesus only because some people, like, they just won't hear you. Like, you say Jesus, and they just shut, they just shut down, you know, and their brains turn off, and they just roll their eyes and go into a comatose state. So... Instead, we're starting with some other ones. Um, because if you're a student of prophecy, then you've got to be a student of Jesus. Because it's ultimately, there's so much about him. Um, well, that's that's what I have for you guys today. Next week, we'll look at some, some stuff from Daniel. And I hope I didn't move too fast. I will put this up on YouTube. And I hope it's going to be fruitful for you. Um, I tried to give you both the prophecies, their fulfillments, the historical verification of it, as well as the attacks that come against it so that you're hopefully well prepared. Um, that was Ezekiel 26, if you want to go back and reread it. What you probably need to know is the name's Nebuchadnezzar. And he, in 586, he came in, and then Alexander the Great, in 332, he came in. And if you can remember those things, you'll remember the, the, de the rest of the details will probably come on a map. So Nebuchadnezzar 586, Alexander 332. And uh, yeah, so let's pray. We'll do some good Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word for the assurance 
that we have that hundreds of years later we can look back and we can see there's fulfilled prophecy. And of course someone could choose not to believe it, but they'd be hard pressed to find a rational explanation. And that's pretty much how it is. Unbelief becomes a position. It just becomes an assumption, not just. And so Lord, as we continue to go through prophecy, we pray for anybody who might be watching these videos that, that they would come around. And they would see that the nature of these things, these, these historical passages, is not written as hyperbole, as, as crazy stuff, and it's verifiable and testable, and the accusations against it are basically just assumptions that it didn't happen. So we pray, Father, that uh, those who watch this would be drawn towards the truth of the scriptures, so they'd be drawn towards the truth of Jesus.